Good morning, y'all. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Today, if you're uh, new or you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, we're starting a series this morning, something new to kick off a, a, a new year and maybe to set a, a path or a, a trajectory for, for the year ahead. We're going to take the next several weeks to focus in on a handful of spiritual disciplines, um, practices that followers of Jesus have um, put into their habits over the, the centuries in order to, to form their, their hearts, their souls, and their affections for the Lord. And so uh, today we're going to look at prayer. Next week we're going to look at giving. We're going to focus in on meditating upon the scriptures and even talk about fasting in this series, just to focus our, our minds and our hearts towards what maybe the Lord wants to do in each of our lives in 2024. And so my hope for you and for our church through this is that uh, we would maybe dust off some of these habits that we've had, maybe even tinker with some new habits and consider some new ways of engaging with the Lord so that perhaps 2024 is a year of spiritual growth and maturity. Perhaps 2024 is a year where we uh, learn something new about God and about ourselves as we journey with Jesus in discipleship and with his church in his mission. And so that's our hope for this series. We've called it, Let's Get Started. Let's get started with something. And today we're going to look at, let's get started with prayer. Uh, how do we want to see our prayer lives grow and flourish in the year ahead? And perhaps there's no better passage in the Bible to talk about prayer uh, than the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Uh, if, you've, if you're familiar with this passage of scripture, it's in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus has called his disciples to himself. He's gone up on the mountain. He has sat down and began teaching his disciples. And we know that as this instruction opens up in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins by contrasting the life of his followers with perhaps the, the lives and the, the patterns and the habits of the prevalent religion of his day in Judaism. So he says a lot of com comparison type things. He says, you've heard it say, said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, don't do this, but I say do that. You've seen it lived out this way. I'm calling you to live a different way. That's how chapter 6 even opens up, as Jesus contrasts the lives of, of what he calls the hypocrites or the play actors, those who, who pursue the things of God, but they do so with a malformed intention. Their motivations are skewed. They, they desire praise from other people, or they desire to make themselves holy and righteous by their efforts so that then God must reward them in a particular way. And Jesus lines out for them, our prayer lives are not to be shaped in the same fashion as those who are playing religion. It's about intimacy and connection with the Lord. It's about a desire to be known by Him and to know Him, to commune with Him, to be found in Him, to have a relationship with Him. So, so having prefaced with all that, let's look at then in, in chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says to His disciples, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's a fair statement to say that the, the, the health of your relationships is almost always determined by the depth of your communication. The health of any relationship is determined by the depth of the communication. So uh, many psychologists, sociologists, I think have studied this over the years. There's uh, communication experts have talked about the four levels of communication in relationship, that every relationship is hitting on one of these levels. And uh, the, the, the deeper, the, the higher the number, the deeper the level of communication. So level one is just uh, what we would call perhaps um, small talk. Uh, you know, words and phrases that we use to engage with one another that really don't carry a whole lot of meaning, but it's a way of occupying the same space and doing so perhaps in a less awkward way than just standing silently beside a person. So you say things like, how was your Christmas? How was your new year? What do you think about the weather? How's work? It's just small talk. It's just basic engagement with another for the purposes of having something to fill the space and time. The second level of communication is the sharing of facts. And this is typically where friendships begin to emerge because you say things like, hey, man, did you watch the game? Yeah. Who's your team? Well, my team is, you know, Ole Miss. Oh, I like Ole Miss too. Or you're Hell State. Get away from me. I don't like you. You know, relationship's over. But whatever the Whatever the thing is, when you begin sharing facts, that's, that, that's, that's a, a bid for a connection, if you will. Here's, here's what's going on in my day, what's been going on in yours. Now, both of those, both you know, um, small talk and fact sharing are what I would call superficial conversations, though. They really don't require any exposure of either what you're thinking or what you're feeling. It's just merely the exchange of information. But for a relationship to kind of go below the line, to go below the surface and to have some measure of depth to it, it's got to get to level three, which is sharing of opinions. I think this. I like that. I don't like this. I don't like that. And so you start digging into the, the thinking of the person. You exchange opinions so that you get a little bit of a sense of who the person actually is. But the fourth level is the feeling level. Next, the exchange of what's going on in the heart or in the soul. This is how this makes me feel. I'm, I'm scared. I'm happy. I'm afraid. I'm depressed. Whatever the, the level of depth of feeling is, and when two people are communicating at level four where they're sharing some measure of understanding and empathy towards the other, other's feelings, you actually have an intimate relationship. Most of the time, whenever I work with a couple whose marriage may be struggling, they come to meet with me, I'll say, hey, what, what's your communication look like these days? And oftentimes, if they're around my age and they have kids around my age, there's just a lot of fact sharing going on. Today, someone's got to take this kid to a doctor's appointment at 3, while someone's got to take this kid to a practice at 3.30. How are we going to negotiate the terms of this arrangement? And so fact sharing occupies the majority of the conversation, which means that you're kind of like roommates. But if you want to go deeper in that relationship, you've got to get to the level of feeling. My wife and I did a project several years ago with a marriage uh, therapist and counselor who was just helping serve a group of pastors. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get together and I want you to write down a list of 10 things that the other person does for you that results in positive feeling. So whatever they do you, or however they act or whoever they are, aspect of their character, maybe even of their physical appearance or whatever, explain to them how that makes you feel, provided that it's a positive experience. And he said, I want you to do this whenever you do that. I want you to each one take a turn and look each other in the eye as you communicate that. 
I was like, okay, that sounds really simple. Seems like something we do all the time. I don't think we'd ever done 10 things towards each other, maybe in the history of our marriage at that point. And then he said, oh, by the way, when you finish this experiment, you're going to need a little bit of time for other things. Because intimacy gets formed whenever you do stuff like this. And guess what? Other stuff happens as well. And I was like, now we're talking. So, <laughs> but it's true. The level, the depth of, of, of intimacy, the depth of relationship is always gauged by the depth of communication. You have two people who only talk about things above the level. You really don't have much of a relationship. And why do I bring all that up? Because we see that whenever Jesus is here beckoning his disciples to pray, he's calling them to pray in a different way. There's a way of prayer that's prevalent in Jesus' day, and apparently it's sort of irrespective of religious backgrounds. It's pointed at both the Jews and the Gentiles. He, he kind of picks a fight with both. He says, some just go into the synagogues, and they, 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 they parade their, their, their piety around in order to be recognized and noticed by others. In other words, there's a way of praying that is wrong. There's a way of praying that is corrupted or is misguided. He says, there's another way. The Gentiles, they think that in order to be heard by their God, they just have to say a bunch of stuff. And words kind of aren't the point in a sense. That There's more going on than just mouthing particular phrases or saying particular things. Jesus says, when you pray, I want you to pray like this. And so to kick us off in 2024 in a particular direction as the people of God who are focused on getting started on very specific spiritual disciplines that maybe will prompt us to follow Jesus more into the new year. Let's focus in on what it looks like to pray the way Jesus has taught us to pray. Now, I want to give you three things this morning that I think will ho hopefully shape your prayer life in the year to come, that if we were in fact to venture into this together as God's people and as a church, we would be people who pray differently come this time next year. The first thing that we see is that Jesus gives his disciples a principle. He gives them a principle. In other words, there's got to be an, a kind of a foundation to your prayer life. There's got to be something that undergirds why you pray, what your hopes and your intentions are for praying, a principle that sort of foundationally sets prayer on a particular course for a follower of Jesus. Look back again in verse 5. He starts off by talking about the hypocrites and those play actors and how they go into the synagogues or on the street corners, and they, say, they, they, they pray in order to, to have their reward by being seen by others. In other words, their prayer life is merely performance. It's piety that is put on display in order to beckon perhaps the respect or the adoration of others. Jesus says, verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he goes on. He says, you know what? In verse 7, don't pray like the Gentiles do. Don't just say a bunch of nonsense. Don't just repeat certain phrases, thinking that somehow that incantation tricks God into doing something for you. Instead, he says, pray like this. I think what we're supposed to take from Jesus' compare and contrast between both the prayers of the Gentiles and of the hypocrites is that like any spiritual discipline, prayer can become perverted or even corrupted. And the scriptures, prayer is simply calling on the name of the Lord. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. When, when Adam and Eve are set apart and they're out, outcast out of Eden and they begin calling on the name of the Lord and their descendants do and Abraham does. And Israel is marked by being a people who call on the name of the Lord. They, they, they use the name of God, the Old Testament name Yahweh, as a, as a way of summoning their Lord to listen, to hear, to respond to them. Prayer then is directed to God. To pray is to come to God as a child, to listen to him and to respond to him. Prayer is simply calling on the name of the Lord. It's communication with God based on his self-revelation and his character. That's what the scripture teaches us. 
We pray because of who God has shown himself to be in the Bible. We pray because he's consistent in who he is. We pray because God is omniscient. He knows all things. We pray because God is omnipresent. He is in all places, so he hears us, and he's with us when we pray. We pray because of who God is. We come to him again as children, and we expect him to listen and to respond. Now, what Jesus teaches us here is that prayer is not an exercise in showing off or showing out. Prayer is not something that's primarily done publicly, even though we pray publicly, even though the church is called to pray publicly. Jesus says here, if you really want to connect with the Lord, go into your room and shut the door. The theologian Martin Luther used to say that, that prayer at its best should be brief and frequent and intense. That we don't have to use a lot of words. As, as Solomon would say in the book of Ecclesiastes, when we enter into the presence of God, let our words be few. We don't have to say a whole lot of things. We can get to the point. But it should be frequent. In other words, if you're walking around in this messed up world with carrying around your own messed up self, you're going to have lots of occasions to need God's intervention and to commune with him. So it should be frequent. And it should be intense because you're coming to the God of all creation. Some measure of intensity to the words that we say. Lord, I need you. Lord, move in these ways. We'll get to that more in just a minute. But when we're talking about prayer, we need a principle. We need to really realize what it is that we're doing. The second thing Jesus says is that you need a place. Now, I know that there's a contrast between public and private here, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's happenstance that Jesus says, go into your room and close the door. In fact, the word that Jesus used for, uses for room here in the Greek is a very specific place in the house. Most likely it would have been the only place in the ancient homes that he's talking about that had a door that would lock. He's talking about going to some place that is very private, that is very secluded. And if you look at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, you see that he made a frequent habit of this. He would go to various places on purpose to pray. He would pull back from the people. He would go away on the mountaintop. He would retreat from the masses in order to be alone with his father. And so one small encouragement I would give you in the year ahead, whenever you think about how you're going to pray in 2024, when it comes to prayer, prioritize the private over the public. And on top of that, find a spot where you connect with God. Think about place. It matters. For some of you, maybe in your car on your commute to work. Maybe that's the way where you can really focus in and be present with the Lord. For some, it may be a, a room in your house or a particular chair, a particular place where, where you connect most vitally with the Lord. I, I learned uh, just a handful of years ago, it's probably been the last seven or eight years though, that I've realized this about my own spiritual disciplines of prayer life. I pray better in nature and when I'm walking. The intensity of my prayer life amplifies whenever I'm out away from screens and stuff and controlled environments, when, when I'm out in the midst of, of whether it be birds chirping or wind blowing, whatever the case may be, and I'm focused in on what God is up to in my heart and life in those moments. I don't know why God made me that way, but that appears to be the way that my prayer life is most vibrant. Find a place in 2024 where you connect with the Lord. A pastor that discipled and mentored me, his wife uh, that passed, sadly passed away uh, quite a while back, she, she had a chair that she prayed in. My wife uh, actually lived with them for a while when she was finishing up college. And she said, no matter what, anytime I got up in the morning before the sun was up, if I happened to walk to the living room, Debbie was always in that chair. And it was a prayer chair. Her journal sat beside it, her Bible sat beside it. Every day she was in that place praying. Something about having a place that forms habits, that shapes the way that we conduct our lives. Find a place to pray. 
Now, we're going to spend the majority of our time on this third point because it's the emphasis of Jesus' instruction for prayer, the pattern of prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples about how they go about praying. And it begins in verse 9 when Jesus says clearly to them, pray like this. Now, this isn't to say that we are meant to recite these particular words, but he shows us a pattern of the things that are important and significant whenever we go to the Lord in prayer. He begins at the end of verse 9 with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First thing I would say about the pattern of prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples is that prayer starts with adoration, with adoring God with lifting up who he is in his person, with acknowledging who he is in his character. And even that opening line, our Father who is in heaven, shows us that we're dealing with a God that is unlike anything or anyone. He is our Father, and yet he is in heaven. He's both imminent, he's near like a father, and he's transcendent. He's above all of creation. He's other. And so just this acknowledgement means that when we come into the presence of God, we're coming into the presence of one who, who, whose very essence beckons our praise and our respect. That if we really understand who God is, if we really get a sense of his character and his nature as it's revealed in the scriptures, then, then our prayer life should begin with adoring him. It should come under his authority, under a, a measure of respect for, for what he's done. He's both relationally close and intimately involved. He's utterly concerned. He wants to get to level four communication with you as quickly as possible. And yet, he's sovereign, and he's holy, and he's just, and he's other, and he's outside of our temporal time and space. He's above us. He's righteous in all that he is and all that he does. His power and his transcendence are beyond us. That's why when we pray, our hearts and our minds should be utterly opened to the person of God in adoration. We don't come to God merely with a laundry list of requests. We come to God as children go to a father. And we come to God as humble subjects go to their creator, both simultaneously because that's who he is. I would encourage you this morning as you reflect on your prayer life, how much adoration is leaking in there? How often does your prayer life begin with that? And I've been a Christian now long enough to know that we get in these repetitive patterns of praying that often just kind of get stuck in particular forms. All right, Lord, here I am, here you are. Now here's the stuff that I need to see happen in my life. Jesus says, no, when you pray, begin with the nature and character of God. Begin with his eminence and his transcendence. Adore him for who he is. In John Stott's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says it like this. The essence of Christian prayer is to seek God. We seek him in order to acknowledge him as the person he is, God the creator, God the Lord, God the judge, God our heavenly father through Jesus Christ our savior. We desire to meet him in the secret place in order to bow down before him in humble worship, love, and trust. That's what it means to pray. That's the reason that we pray, to have our hearts driven towards worship. And that's why the second line that Jesus says is so important for adoration. He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The the essence of who God is is found in his name. That's what we see in the Old Testament whenever God's self-revelation to Moses shows up in the book of Exodus. I am who I am. As God would defend his name and exemplify his character through his name through the Old Testament, Jesus says, if you understand who he is, if you get an essence of who he is and how he's revealed himself, then you hallow his name. You, you kind of shrink down before his name. You set his name aside as other or as different. 
You adore him for who he is. This means it's the necessary starting point for our prayer life is worship. We ascribe value to God. This is how we get out of our small, uh, infinitely myopic focus on our own problems, issues, and circumstances. We break out of that mold by reflecting on the person of God and hallowing his name. That's what it means to adore him. Then in verse 10, Jesus says, after God has been adored in your prayer life, after adoration comes submission. Look at verse 11, or verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus says, when we're praying rightly, we're not just bringing our laundry list of concerns and you know, messed up circumstances to God. We're coming to God and saying, what we want more than anything is for God's will to be manifest on earth, even as it is in heaven. What we long for is to see God's will done in our lives. We're coming under that authority. We're submitting ourselves to him. We're surrendering our agendas and our motives and our egos before him. And we're allowing God to shape the, the direction our life will take. When we come under his sovereign care, when we come under his, his fatherly love for us, when we're connecting with God in an intimate level where God desires to expose our hearts, we can now freely and completely surrender our will to the Lord's. That's what it means to follow Jesus after all, to lay down our own ideas about how our life should be going to surrender our vision of the good life that we're always so working so diligently to try to perfect and pull off. Jesus says, no, you come to God in prayer and you surrender your little small kingdom that you're trying to build in exchange for the true kingdom, the kingdom that God is at work building, asking God to make it manifest on earth as it is in heaven. Now, why is this important? Why is this step necessary before we get to petition, the, the asking of things from God? Because if we skip this step, if we miss worship and surrender as a part of what it means to pray to a holy God, then we don't ask for God to do certain things on the basis of his character or his purposes. You see that? If we don't come under his authority, if we haven't acknowledged who he is, if we haven't worshiped him, then we're just trying to negotiate some exchange and acknowledgement that we have limited power and maybe God has a little more power than us. And so maybe if we like the Gentiles, say the right things, like the hypocrites, do the right things, then maybe we can negotiate some transactional relationship with a heavenly being who will reward our best efforts. Jesus says, no. Begin with the fact that he is your father and he's above you and beyond you. Begin with the fact that he has a will for the world that's probably different than yours. And in order for you to get on the same page with your request, you have to surrender your agenda. You have to lay down your motives. Lord, your will be done, not mine. Now, just so that we know that Jesus is a very good God who loves us to the end, Jesus does this very thing. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he goes before his, Lord, his, his Father, his Heavenly Father and his Lord, and he says, God, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even in his crucifixion, even in his torture and death, Jesus is modeling for us what this prayer looks like in practice. A vibrant prayer life has some element of submission to it. You see, these first two injunctions that Jesus gives us, they rescue you from your own kingdom making. Jesus is stressing to us that God knows what you need before you even ask. He doesn't want you to refrain from asking. He just wants your heart to align to ask for the things that he really wants for you. Not to, not to bring the things that you think you deserve or even the things that you necessarily want. He wants your prayer life to drive you to the gospel, 
What you most need is someone to live your life, die your death, and resurrect so that your life can be rescued from this vain pursuit of self, from the small glory in the little kingdom that we also inevitably, inevitably tried to build if we ignore these things and fail to practice prayer in this way. Submission is at the heart of what a vibrant prayer life looks like. We're placing ourselves under the care, under the sovereignty, under the love of a heavenly father who has a very good will for our lives. It may not look like what we think it should look like, but it is what's best. How is your prayer life in 2024 going to bring you to a place of submission and surrender? Third, Jesus teaches his disciples then to, to petition. After they have surrendered to the Lord's will, after they have come under his authority, verse 11, then they are free up to say, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I'm eating a little different this week. We'll see how long that holds out. So this may shape a little differently. Give me, this, give me this day my daily protein because I'm trying to avoid some of the carbs and that's what we're told to pray for here. But in the ancient world, basically the, the bread was the sustenance of life. You needed carbohydrates because you needed energy and there wasn't a whole lot of other ways to find it. And so what Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray is give me what I need to do what you called me to do. Give me what I need to be who you called me to be. And I love the fact that Jesus puts a time constraint on the request for bread. Did you see it? When he teaches his disciples to petition the Lord for certain things, he doesn't say, give me this month my monthly bread or this year my yearly bread. He's, he's not focusing on, you know, a particular long-range long plan. It's daily. Why? Because he's teaching his disciples that dependence upon the Lord is a daily exercise. It, it's, a, it's a going back to the Lord in an ever-increasing fashion. I'm not worried about tomorrow because Jesus is going to teach them very shortly in the same sermon, don't worry about tomorrow because you can't add a single day to your life by worrying about tomorrow. Why are you worried and anxious about anything to begin with? Your heavenly father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, he'll say. But he's already taught them prior to making that statement. This is how you should then pray. If you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that God loves you, and if you believe that God is with you, then when you pray, pray for what you need that day. God is not in the business of building up this storehouse that then eliminates your need to trust him. That's not his agenda. That's not his goal. He's not looking to supply you with so much that you can forget about him and get on with your merry life. He wants you to depend on him daily. He's designed life to work that way. In fact, that's the way intimate relationships flourish. A daily point of connection where you're coming back and exchanging. This is what I need from you. This is what you have to offer. This is what you're giving me. This is what you've welcomed me into. By teaching his disciples to petition this way, Jesus is teaching his disciples to depend upon God. If they could go to God, if Jesus taught them, hey, pray for what you need for the next quarter, they would do that. And then maybe get what they needed and then check in with God in Q2. Unless things are still going well, then maybe not again for a while. Because that's the way in the age of abundance and surplus that we live, that's how we often operate. Yeah, the market's been doing okay. I got a little thing, a little app on my phone, and it tells me it's you know, tracking along. I'll only check what's going on there if, I, if things get bad, disastrous. I'll only call my financial guy when stuff looks like it's going sideways. Jesus says, don't have that sort of relationship with your heavenly father. Don't look for stockpiling of resources such that you can put him on the shelf and go on your own merry way. How many of your concerns about the future would evaporate if you simply began to pray for your daily bread, for what's coming up today, 
for what you're going to need in the next 24 hours? What if you got to focus on that particular span of life such that you were looking for God to show up and meet needs in those particular moments? That's what Jesus beckons us to when we petition God as our Father. Fourth, Jesus teaches us the act of confession and its essential nature for a vibrant prayer life. Jesus teaches us that confession is absolutely vital if we are going to commune with our Heavenly Father. He spends the majority of verses in teaching his disciples to pray on this very point. He says, give us this day our daily bread in verse 11. Then in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he spells that out further in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Forgive us our debts. Think about that for just a second. This assumes or implies that we owe God something, that we have a debt against the Lord. It assumes that our sin has mounted up against us. It assumes that if his name is hallowed, and if he is who he says that he is, and we fail to give him what he deserves, then our transgression, our going against his law, our failure to do what we've been summoned to do and called to do, means that we must ask for forgiveness. We, we have an act of confessing our sins to the Lord in our liturgy because it's what the people of God do. We acknowledge none of us are fully sanctified. None of us walked in here today without a need for confession. That as the prophet Isaiah would say, even our righteousness is as filthy rags in the presence of a holy God. And we all come before God laid bare. We all come before God needy and desperate for his grace and his mercy. And we also have to forgive others. Reconciliation with God vertically should spill out horizontally. If you can hold a grudge or nurse your bitterness and resentment towards another human and claim that you have therefore received the grace of God simultaneously, something is wrong with your understanding of grace. If God has been gracious to you, meaning that he poured out his love and mercy on you, not when you had earned it, but while you were his enemy, while you were in abject rebellion to his law and his way, then how dare we nurse resentment or bitterness towards others? How dare we hold a grudge? How dare we keep a record of their wrongs? God hasn't done that to us. That's why we'll see next semester as we begin looking at what we've been studying in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, even as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus, so also should you forgive one another. Jesus teaches his disciples that confession is a pattern of the way that they communicate with God. It's a way they're, they're, they're intimate with their Lord as an acknowledgement of the debt that they owe him and the grace that he's given them. Leon Morris says in his commentary, the prayer, uh, this prayer recognizes that we have no right to seek forgiveness for our own sins if we are withholding forgiveness from others. Jesus is saying that to fail to forgive others is to demonstrate that one has not felt the saving touch of God. It's that vital and it's that serious. That's why Jesus will teach his disciples, look, if you go to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar. Go and be reconciled. It's why whenever we come to take communion here in just a moment, we'll say, look, if you have a grievance with someone, this is your opportunity to practice repentance. If someone has something against you, this is your opportunity to pursue peace with them. Because this is what Jesus intends for those who follow him, for those who seek to know him and be found in him. Lastly, and Jesus says to pray for protection. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Charles Spurgeon used to say, since you're always being tempted, you should always be praying for protection against temptation. Pray without ceasing because you're tempted without ceasing. 
Pride comes before the fall. Pride comes whenever we say, you know what, I've been doing pretty good. You know, my diet, the last five days, out of the park. But I know I am one bad meeting away from going headfirst into a bag of tortilla chips and salsa. It's around the corner. It's haunting me. I know that it's there. So if I'm going to keep on this path, I've got to acknowledge my weakness and pray that God would help me to, to grow in faith, to grow in Christ-likeness, so that whenever I face temptation, I'm protected by the Holy Spirit. Just as you must lean into Jesus' provision for daily bread, so also you have to lean into God's protection to keep you from sin. I love the way Stott summarizes this entire prayer in his commentary. He says it like this. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises and that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them out before him. In a word, that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. That's why we pray. That's what you're called to this year. How is your prayer life going to be shaped? How is it going to be formed in the year ahead such that you enter into this abiding relationship with your Lord and Savior and your, your relationship flourishes? Two things and I'm done. Number one, how are you going to pray different this week? Have a plan. For some of you, that may mean you take a journal. You write some things down. For some of you, it may mean you just find a place. You go home today and you look for a spot in your house where I'm going to spend, I don't know, five minutes, 10 minutes praying tomorrow in that chair, in that room. And then secondly, I would say, how will you incorporate some of these elements that Jesus talks about here? We're, we're creatures of habit. If you're like me, my prayer life is often rushed. It's often happening just in the state of emergency, you know, the... the the DEFCON 10 alarms are going off in life. And I'm like, ah, oh, I got to do something. And I'm like, Nehemiah, I'm just throwing up flares. Lord, save me. That's all I got. What about adoration? What about confession? I know you do petition. What, what about protection? Maybe this week you pick one of those. Maybe this week you take one of those things. And I'm going to spend at least a few minutes just adoring God. I'm going to read a psalm, find an aspect of God's character that jumps off the page to me, and I'm going to say, I'm going to thank God that he's like that. What about the temptation that's ever before you? The sin that's knocking on your door, the one you're so familiar with that haunts you, perhaps. Have you beckoned God for protection? Have you beckoned God for protection with another human being in the room, such that you have some measure of accountability? How are you going to pray different in 2024? So Lord, to that end, we, we want to communion with you. You've given us this gift of being able to enter into your presence at any time by simply calling upon your name. Holy Spirit, you guide our hearts to connect with you. Jesus, you call us to abide in you that we much, may bear much fruit. And so Lord, I pray that Living Hope as a church in 2024 would see their prayer lives deepened in the year ahead. Not so that we feel more pious, not so that we believe we get some sort of reward for it, but so that we, we're walking with you and we trust you such that the worries and anxieties of this world and the, all the crazy making that the news stations throw at us wouldn't knock us off track from following Jesus into the chaos and the crazy because he's with us, because you love us, because you'll be good to us forever. So to that end, Lord, would our, would our prayer lives shape our, our hearts in such a way to where we trust you more because of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.